Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome everybody to episode 20 of Push Dose EMS, uh, your monthly Milwaukee County uh, podcast. Uh, we welcome you all back for another round. Uh, and we're going to continue the discussion that we started last month uh, in obstetrics and uh, OB and delivery. So uh, before we get too deep into the weeds, uh, I'd like to welcome all of our guests for today. Uh, just looking down my list, I have uh, EMS Division Director Dan Podrar. Welcome, Dan. Hey, everyone. Uh, System Medical Director, Dr. Ben Weston. Dr. Weston, welcome. Hi, Jeff. Hello, everyone. And our EMS Fellows, uh, uh, Dr. Nico Arendovich. Welcome, Dr. Arendovich. How's it going? And Dr. Brandon Drezich. Dr. Drezich, hello. Welcome. Excellent. Uh, I'm glad everybody come back around this month to continue this discussion. Uh, I think it's a really interesting and important topic. Uh, but as usual, before we dive into our discussion in depth, uh, I'm going to send it over for some updates. So Dan, anything from the system? Yeah, thanks, Jeff. I uh, just wanted to um, think about and recognize some of the fire and EMS crews over in Ukraine uh, as this conflict's unfolding. Uh, it's inspiring and frightening to think about operating in a war zone uh, and trying to do your normal daily jobs. I've seen some posts on social media about, you know, ambulances that have been targeted. There's lots of, you know, patients obviously to take care of and fire and EMS is still putting up the stick and going into apartments and high rises that have been shelled. So just thinking about our brothers and sisters overseas. Uh, locally here, really the only uh, system reminder I had for the group was uh, national registry is due at the end of March. So, if you still need education, there are certainly plenty of options available to get that education completed and that recertification completed as well. Thanks. Thanks, Dan. Uh, and uh, from the medical direction team, Dr. Weston, any updates this month? All right. Thanks, Jeff. So uh, locally, our COVID numbers are declining, which is great news. Uh, and that's across the board. Our cases, our hospitalizations, our deaths, uh, everything is going down. So We'll certainly continue to watch those numbers. We'll update our number notice as appropriate as those trends continue. Uh, also, we're coming up on annual guideline updates. So I want to give a kudos to our guideline and policy subcommittee chaired by Linda Matrich. Uh, this committee has been doing a great job. It includes people from all different fire departments, uh, and they're really moving forward a nice set of guideline updates and improvements uh, that are evidence-based. They are quality informed and equity focused. So more to come on that in the near future. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Dr. Weston. Uh, and with that, uh, we will dive into our topic. So um, as per usual, uh, Dr. Zarendovich and Drezich, I will turn the floor over to you to lead us through uh, some more wonderful world of obstetrics. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Act Two of our podcast on OB emergencies. Uh, last month, we covered uh, a lot of the issues during the course of pregnancy. Today, we're going to begin Act Two and talk about the issues that can arise during delivery itself. Before we get into that, we're going to go ahead and summarize a few of the key points from last month. Doing this allows us to give you a little bit of spaced repetition and helps us all burn this into our memories a little bit more. Remember gestational age, the important number is gonna be 20 weeks. This is the point of the viability of the fetus. 
During this time, we consider issues of vaginal bleeding. In less than 20 weeks, things you can consider are spontaneous abortions, aka the miscarriage, but it also could be something called an ectopic pregnancy, and it might actually just be pelvic inflammatory disease or STDs. Greater than 20 weeks, we worry about things like abruption, which is the separation of the placenta from the wall, usually accompanied with abdominal pain, and then something called placenta previa, which is the abnormal placement of the placenta. In terms of abdominal pain, again, broken between less than and above 20 weeks of gestation, less than 20 weeks, you're going to think first and foremost, yes, all of your classic non-pregnant issues. You're also going to think through your pregnancy issues, which is mainly thinking through ectopic pregnancy. When that egg is implanted in the wrong spot, the diagnosis we all worry about in that young pregnant female with abdominal pain. You'll notice we said that twice, and that's how important it is to remember this. Sometimes it's bleeding, sometimes it's abdominal pain. Greater than 20 weeks with abdominal pain, we think of, again, those classic non-pregnancy-related issues like your appendicitis, cholecystitis, other abdominal issues. But you can also think through contractions. They can be Braxton Hicks contractions, which are false contractions, uh, less than eight times an hour or four times every 20 minutes, no vaginal bleeding or vaginal discharge. Those are normal to see in pregnancy, but you can also have those actual true bona fide contractions, uh, which may lead to a delivery. Remember never to assume Braxton Hicks contractions and a lot of these things. It's just something to keep in mind. All of these things will require a pelvic exam to determine whether the patient's in active labor or not but it's something to keep in your differential. Just to recap those true emergencies there, all of the causes of bleeding and abdominal pain, remember there are a few emergencies. Most critically, we think through, for the third time we're mentioning it now, those ectopic pregnancies. Those kill women as they rupture in the abdomen and lead to uncontrolled internal bleeding. And then also hemorrhagic shock. We also think about abruption as well. And that is when that placenta separates. A lot of times this can be in the setting of trauma and sometimes it can be spontaneous. And of course, the mo- any life-threatening cause of abdominal pain that happens to non-pregnant patients is also something to consider as well. We also wanted to talk a bit about easy, straightforward pregnancy and the importance of PPE and being able to sit there and really just support the mom as opposed to interfering as well as uh, careful placenta delivery. All right, now getting into the core of this month, which is that time of delivery. And before we get too deep into the complications, we want to cover some of the normal course of just delivery itself. Very basic, very quick right now, presuming delivery is imminent and there's no time to get to the hospital. Generally, initially, that baby's head should be presenting and the main task is to gently gently support the delivery, encouraging mom to push, kind of pushing through her bottom like she's having a bowel movement through the entirety of the contractions. If a bowel movement happens, that's likely to happen as well. But the biggest thing for you to do here is be a cheerleader. You are doing pretty much nothing throughout this with the exception of support, both physically and emotionally. The mom is going to be doing absolutely everything for this, and she should be the one doing most doing most of it as well. Once you see babies head presenting, what you want to do is gently clasp your hands on both sides of baby's head. Generally, by this point, baby will be turned with face, nose pointed either to the left or the right, and it kind of feels like holding C-spine stabilization. And you indeed want to hold C-spine stabilization and keep that uh, baby in line. What you do is gently guide downward initially, 
until the, the shoulder that's facing the sky comes out. And then you guide gently upwards until the bottom shoulder or the one that's facing the floor comes out. Then you catch and then you take care of the baby. Remember to try to keep the baby as warm as you can because hypothermia can be deadly to the child. And then, of course, you have to deal with the umbilical cord, which is really the last stage of delivery that we all tend to forget about. Doing this, you're going to put gentle traction on the umbilical cord until it tends to separate itself out. What you'll notice is a sudden lengthening of the cord and maybe a little bit of blood to come with it, and then it should come out easily on its own. Now diving into the complications, the stuff that really keep us, keeps us up at night. The real butt clenchers, the proctalgia fugax. Thank you. Latin for severe rectal pain. The obstetric emergencies. Today, we'll be covering complications on the mother's end. We'll start with more straightforward aspect of things. For now, picture yourself on a scene at that call with a pregnant woman. Maybe she's near full term. She feels her contractions. She feels that pelvic pressure. You do a quick exam. You see baby is coming. There is no time to get to the hospital. It is happening here and now. You're going to plant yourself down and you're going to prepare for this, for this delivery, but you got to keep a couple of things in mind of what can happen during the pregnancy. You know, you can see the baby's head start to descend during a contraction. You put out your arms and you get ready to catch the baby, but for some reason, the head stops moving. Maybe even seems to kind of reverse a bit up into the pelvis. You know, it almost seems like the baby has stopped coming down in the process of birth. This is shoulder dystocia. This is essentially the baby's shoulder getting caught, making that delivery kind of come to a stop or a halt at that time. It's that baby's shoulder getting caught up and not passing the pubic symphysis. These will generally be associated with prolonged protracted labor, and it occurs at a rate of somewhere between 0.2% and 3% of deliveries. The typical teaching is that this is associated with what they call a turtle sign. This is that idea where the head is kind of starting to pop out and it kind of drops back in again because it's caught on the shoulder. Sometimes you might see a little bit of facial flushing in the baby as well. Remember that neither of these things are necessarily diagnostic, so you're going to have to keep this in mind when things are failing to progress the way you expect them to do. These don't sound terrible when it starts, but this can be a risk for both the infant and the mother. From the infant side, the rate of real injury is around 5%. That ranges from some benign causes, such as brachial plexus injury, leading to like herbs palsy. This is a nerve injury of the uh, shoulder and arm, all the way to infant hypoxia and death. From the mom's side, the risk of bleeding. And let's emphasize hemorrhage is a core cause of maternal death during delivery. About one in 10 of these cases will be associated with postpartum hemorrhage and a heart, a handful will have large lacerations, which might be a significant area of bleeding that you see. So what do you do in these cases? It's a technique called the McRoberts maneuver in combination with something called suprapubic pressure. You see, McRoberts maneuver is actually pretty new and came out in an article in the 80s. It's a pretty simple idea which involves hyperflexing the mother's knees to the level of her abdomen. Picture a woman supine in that bed with her feet in stirrups. What this looks like is if you take those ankles and your feet with the knees coming up towards the chest, you are hyperflexing at the level of the hips and really bringing those entire legs 
up, 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 and towards the chest in that uh, frog-like position. What's really interesting about this technique is that during pregnancy, that sacroiliac joint or SI joint apparently gets more mobile. So that using this technique actually allows that pelvic ring to open a bit more. And someone was actually able to prove this in the 2000s doing a series of x-ray studies in hyperflexion in pregnant patients. That second part is the suprapubic pressure. And this is really conceptually easy to understand. You're just going to push and squeeze the shoulder from the outside of the abdomen to get it past the bone. The most important aspect of this is that it needs to be super pubic. It's not fundal. You are going low in the abdomen, just above that pelvic bone. You are not pushing from the top of the abdomen. I think the ultimate question that you get to here is when you see a failure of descent, if this issue is happening, maybe you see that turtle sign, head pops out, pops back in, when to stay in play and when to go ahead, pack up and move to the hospital? That's a great question. Anyways, let's move on. Moving on to our next scenario, you're getting ready to deliver a baby and you don't notice the head necessarily right there. Maybe not another part of the baby right there, but the umbilical cord itself. Here we're talking about cord prolapse. This is where the cord is essentially coming out first ahead of the baby coming out. This is an issue because at this point, the cord is still tethered to the baby and it's the steady supply of blood and oxygen. This happens in less than 1% of cases, but carries about a 10% risk of death to the baby. A lot of times this might not be an issue, but it's really the equivalent of choking the kid out. Like a kink in the O2 supply to your SCBAs. A lot of times in the vertex presentation, it's the head that puts pressure on the cord. It can be super difficult to determine, but if you can determine the pulse, it can help you guide your care. Our guidelines recommend trying to determine that pulse rate of the cord. The goal is it to be over 100. If you can't figure out what it is, just take the safer approach. And what you want to do in this situation is, again, put the take the pressure off of the cord. Take a sterile glove, push back on the presenting part, elevating it, lifting it off the cord. You want to take whatever part of baby is coming down and pushing on the umbilical cord to kink it and lift, push baby up off that area to allow flow to oxygen, blood, everything like that to come through. In these cases, what you're going to want to do is do a pretty fast transport. Realistically, these need to definitely go to OB receiving places because they're going to need to perform an emergency section on this patient. Moving on to our next scenario. So say you've gotten through delivery, you've delivered baby, but you notice tons, tons, tons of ongoing blood loss from the vaginal area. Maybe mom's blood pressure is starting to drop. Maybe that mental status is starting to decline. Here we are dealing with postpartum hemorrhage. Here's the scary one. This is the true emergency. And though it might not meet that true trauma activation criteria, this should really be considered like any other bleed associated with the trauma. When we look at the actual diagnostic like, title for it, they describe the postpartum hemorrhage as being, quote, one liter of blood loss within 24-hour period associated with signs and symptoms of hypovolemia, quote. Now, I don't want us to think like this, though, because that's an in-hospital definition. And the fact is, a lot of it can occur right after delivery, and it can occur for a variety of reasons. As food for thought, the average delivery has about 500 cc's or half a liter of blood loss. So you're already living on a prayer. Are you trying to say that for the average birth, the blood loss is already 
halfway to our definition of hemorrhage, halfway to postpartum hemorrhage? Yes. Well, anyways, that can make this a little bit harder and more complicated is the fact that the physiologic compensation, one might actually lose 30% of their blood before you notice any blood pressure changes. And one of the only findings might be tachycardia. So now that idea that we can look towards vital signs as a method of determining whether this person is exsanguinating or not is just a lot harder, which makes it harder because this person is likely to just be tachycardic anyways, since they just delivered a child. So what you need is a very high index of suspicion in these cases. So what causes postpartum hemorrhage? Well, there are a few things, and we'll take you through a, no a few of these, beginning with uterine atony. This is a uterus that just doesn't firm up after delivery. This is the most common cause of postpartum hemorrhage. About one in 40 um, patients will present with this. And remember, the uterus is a muscle. Normally, once baby comes out, the placenta is separated. The uterus is kind of supposed to flex, uh, you know, contract back down to its normal, firm, relatively small shape, um, essentially putting pressure on the blood vessels that were supplying the placenta to stop that excessive bleeding. After birth, the, uter the uterus is now fatigued it's sometimes going to have a hard time contracting down on those blood vessels. It's been squeezing for a time to get baby out, to get placenta out, and sometimes it just gets a little tired. The management of this is actually pretty straightforward. If you massage the fondus, like a deep Swedish massage, it'll start to contract. And you'll actually be able to feel this on the patient's suprapubic area. It'll start to become very firm. This is also what happens in response to oxytocin or pitocin when you get to an emergency de uh, department and you might hear either OBs or doctors asking specifically to start oxytocin or pitocin. This will actually also be stimulated when the mother is starting to breastfeed. So if the kid looks stable and the mom looks stable, if you can get mom to start breastfeeding early, you might be able to get some help. Moving on from atony, next cause of uh, postpartum hemorrhage could be uterine inversion. This is the result of the uterus uh, essentially turning inside out. Um, and previously the thought was maybe excessive traction on the umbilical cord, pulling on the placenta, pulling on the uterus during that final stage of labor could cause this type of thing. Uh, turns out there's not a ton of evidence to support that, but it is something to keep in mind when you're placing that gentle traction on the umbilical cord. And again, I emphasize gentle. Think of it again, like that con contracted muscle, but now it's pulling, contracting in the wrong direction because the uterus is more or less inside out. It's gonna to continue to bleed because it's kind of pulling the wrong direction. These typically get managed in hospital by placing a sterile glove into the vagina and physically pushing the uterus back into the right shape as well as this continued fundal massage. After uterine atony, uterine inversion, we can also think through lacerations that occur during delivery. You know, when you consider that you're passing something the size of the football down, uh, down the vaginal canal, it's gonna cause some damage. A lot of times that force is gonna lead to tearing. And at first you might not think that this bleeding would be too much, but it's frequently missed as an in-house issue. These shouldn't bleed too much when they happen, but they definitely can. They grade these lacerations on a scale of four, and sometimes a lot of these people will actually get intravaginal stitches that help stop the bleeding. 
So those are some of the most common causes of postpartum hemorrhage. But remember, you can have underlying conditions that just lead to bleeding in general. You can think of all those general bleeding disorders um, and just be aware of those standard things. A patient might have underlying conditions such as hemophilia or other things that just might cause a young person to bleed a lot more than you might think. I want you to consider those younger patients that might have had aortic valve or heart valve issues that they had to get something replaced, and they might even be on blood thinners for it, which will make this a little bit more complicated. This is why when I when you think about postpartum hemorrhage, really kind of start to consider these things as traumas. All right, moving on to our last section of this particular podcast, we're going to talk about something a little bit more nuanced, which is that spectrum of preeclampsia, eclampsia, and HELP syndrome. You know, preeclampsia is something that can often get missed in the pregnant woman. This is really what falls onto the spectrum of hypertensive disorders. A lot of times we talk about seeing a person being hypertension, having hypertension, we might lay it to the wayside, but in the right clinical situation, it can be very important. And in this case, a pregnant woman greater than 20 weeks, it's very, very important. This can actually turn very quickly into life-threatening conditions, which you have to keep in mind when you see these greater than 20-week pregnant patients. And believe it or not, these can still affect women up to six weeks after their delivery. There's lots of thoughts on why it occurs and several different proposed mechanisms, but we still don't have a clear idea of why it's happening. That being said, it can range from being mild to very dangerous. And I'm going to say this a couple of times here, but as vague as the symptoms can be, you really need to consider hypertension in the pregnant or recently pregnant patient as a big sign. This is going to be a red flag. A lot of times, maybe you'll also note it associated with headaches, blurry vision, maybe some epigastric pain. Uh, Sometimes in the hospital, they'll note that these patients have abnormal liver tests. We actually call this in some cases in its more severe form, HELP syndrome, which is an acronym that says hemolysis, elevated liver enzymes, and low platelets, which is a constellation of hemolysis, abnormal liver enzymes, and low platelets. In its most severe case, though, we do worry about eclampsia, which is all of the above that you can see that we talk about in this case is hypertension, couple other non-specific signs, maybe some lab abnormalities. And of course they have the addition of seizures. In these cases, you can continue your typical seizure management with Versed, but some, keep something in mind is the scope of practice has recently changed. And these, these are the patients that you're gonna wanna give magnesium to when the time comes. At the end of the day, we have no doubt you won't miss those big signs. The seizures, the vision changes, maybe pulmonary edema, those big results of the preeclampsia eclampsia spectrum. But here's the big takeaway is that unlike our general population in pregnant or recently pregnant patients, do not dismiss hypertension that's anywhere above 140 over 90. That is a red flag. It is not just an incidental number. From greater than 20 weeks of pregnancy, Two after two, four weeks postpartum, hypertension is going to be a big red flag that requires a significant medical workup as it can be an ominous sign of a bigger condition. Those patients need to go to the hospital. For these patients that might be in active labor as well, you should still follow your active labor protocols. You should try to deliver the child, considering that's usually one of the most definitive forms of management. Well, that's what we have today. I just want to quickly go over the lightning of what we covered, which is the normal delivery. 
some of the intrapartum delivery issues, such as shoulder dystocia. And don't worry, I realize I totally skipped over how long you should stay in play. And in those cases, if you try your best and you try your McRoberts and your suprapubic pressure techniques and fail, really consider early transport of those. We talked about cord prolapse and making sure those go to specifically OB receiving facilities because of the need for emergency section. We talked about postpartum hemorrhage, atony, using uterine atony, which you need fundal massage, inversion, which is going to require some bleeding control and also fundal massage and eventual replacement in hospital, large lacerations and general bleeding disorders. And we also covered the little nuanced topic of preeclampsia, eclampsia, and HELP syndrome. Next month, we'll cover the newborn resuscitation as well as the other big bads in pregnancy, not necessarily related to the pregnancy itself. In those cases, we'll be talking things like arrhythmias, cardiac arrests, traumatic arrests as well. Well, thank you guys for your time. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. As always, feel free to reach out with any questions regarding an OB, and we'll try to answer them in our next podcast if we get any good ones. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Dr. Zarinovich and Drezic. Some great information once again. And as always, we look forward to what you'll bring us next month. Uh, and as you mentioned, uh, any questions, comments, uh, thoughts on any additional topics or training areas, please feel free to reach out. Our email at the county is emseducation at milwaukeecountywi.gov. I'll thank everyone for joining us today. Uh, stay safe, and we'll see you next month. Thanks.